that my wife has her birthday today. She challenged me to say, to sing from the pulpit. I told her, you really don't want me to do that, do you? I know her well enough to know that she doesn't really want me to do that. So I won't do that. I don't want to embarrass her and me. We were driving this past weekend, and uh, we're in the car. You know, we had everybody in the car. It's, it's a load. And uh, I just noticed that something may not quite smell right. I wasn't sure, but it just didn't quite smell normal. And I stepped outside of the car for a while and do one of my errands. And I came back in, and I thought, oh, it stinks in here. You know, it, it just, it's sour. What, what is that? I was looking underneath the uh, seats thinking, you know, one time we had milk that had rolled down there and it was bad. And uh, I thought, well, maybe there's some sour milk somewhere. Well, you know, when we came to our final destination, we realized that someone used their diaper and had been there for a little while and just needed a changing. And, and, and you know, the thought occurred to me how we were in that car and it just kind of snuck up on us. And we weren't really sure that it stunk, <laughs> you know, we weren't sure until we got out and smelled what fresh air smelled like, and then came back, isn't it amazing how your nose just d- gets dead, you know, just it's like the stench just kills us, like, oh, I can't handle it, you know, it just dies, and you, and you don't realize it, well, I just want to present to you that in our society, in America here, where you and I live, we live in a polluted air, okay? Not just the pollution of what we're literally smelling, but in the spiritual air that we live, it is polluted. It is a heavily sexualized atmosphere that we live in. And we don't even realize how bad it is until we get a glimpse of fresh spiritual air. When we sense a renewing work of God in our hearts, we all of a sudden become exposed and aware of what is around us that is constantly bombarding us that perhaps maybe we were not even sure of before. We may, as I say this, think, well, yeah, there is a vague sense of sexuality in our country. That may be what you're thinking. I, I want you to understand something. You know in the book of Corinth, um, uh, letter of Corinth, that culture, uh, in that day and time, in the Roman era, was known for its immorality. In fact, if someone wanted to describe a sexually immoral act or person, they would call it Corinthian. Corinthian. Listen, do you know that in our world today, that when somebody, some man says, that is an American woman, they're not talking about your nationality. Then in other places of the world, when they call someone an American woman, they're calling that person a loose woman, morally speaking, sexually speaking. You may be looking, well, where do they get that idea? Let me tell you where they get that idea. They get that idea, not because they've come over here. Maybe they have come over here, and maybe it's just confirmed what they've already heard. Or what's more likely is that they have seen American women on TV. Now, what is the image of a woman 
on TV in America? Is there ever an episode where that woman is not placed in a sexual situation? More often than not, they are. And so, in our day, the outside world looking in at America, when they call something American, it is sometimes synonymous with sexually immoral or sexually charged. I just want you to understand that we live in the Corinth of today. That is our society. And the fact of the matter is we may not even realize how bad it is until perhaps maybe we go to another country or you get a glimpse of what God wants and what it means to be seeking him and you see the constant, constant enemy bombarding you, trying to steal your mind, your eyes, your heart away from seeking God in everywhere that you go. Now, I understand we've got folks of all ages, um, and I, I want to be sensitive to that, not just to the ones who are 12 or 13, which, you know, parents, when they're 11 or 12, you know they're, they're thinking about this. They have been introduced to this subject, not by me, um, and it may be good to let them be exposed to some, something like this from a biblical perspective. But I'm also talking to those who are in their 70s, and yes, in their 80s. Some of you are thinking, well, I'm glad all these younger folks are listening to this today. This doesn't pertain to me. I used to think that. Until one of the men that was put up on a pedestal uh, as a moral example, to me, as, as a young, younger person, uh, involved in politics, involved in Southeastern Seminary, uh, involved in, in the Christian work, just a few years ago, in his 70s, gets caught with a prostitute. I'm thinking, I didn't see that coming. And so, in a sexual charged society, there is not one age group that is exempt. And I would just say, don't be overconfident in your age, lest you fall in your pride. So, in where this study of seeking him... We're going to begin this week talking about sexual purity and seeking Him. Do you understand that these two, sexual purity and seeking Him, are synonymous? You have to be having, you have to desire sexual purity in order to seek Him. And if you are not seeking sexual purity, if you are floundering in immorality, sexually speaking, it is a, a robbing of your seeking God. You can't do both. You cannot seek God. And sit in sexual immorality. These two work against one another. And I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 through 8, because I think here it spells it out like in no other passage how these two work together. There are multitude passages in the New Testament as well as in the Old Testament regarding the subject. Do you know that in the New Testament when the gospel was going to uh, groups outside of the Jews and they were trying to figure out what does it mean to be a believer and a follower of Christ and not be a Jew? Do we have to do all these rules that Jews do? Do we really have to change our diet law? Do we really have to be circumcised? You know, uh, and These are the questions that were popping up and it became a, an issue. And so they brought it back to the council in Jerusalem, the church there. And the church decided that one of two matters that every believer must agree to and adhere to, and that was in regards to sexual morality, that there was a standard among believers. 
One of two. The other was concerning these things of idols. Do not give yourselves to those things that are idols. And the other was that they would be sexually pure. And the early church and, and the hundreds, that was the two standards. Isn't that interesting? That that is the very point of attack today and that there are believers today, are those so-called believers who will say, you know what, it doesn't really matter what you do sexually speaking as long as you seek God. And there's all kinds of allowances in their life, personally, in their heart. So, let's look at this passage and I, I just want to share with you what is the will of God. It clearly states, ever, you know, you ever get those points of decision where, what is God's will? And you wish, I wish the Bible would just say, this is God's will. Well, guess what? You've got a passage that says, this is God's will. And let me just state this. If you're wondering and floundering about how God's directing you in the specifics of your life, and you're not doing what God clearly states in the word of God, is there really any hope of thinking that God's going to give you special direction concerning a, a personal decision that you're making when you're not obeying what God clearly states is the will of God? And you say, oh, I just want to go God's will in this matter. But all the while, you're living in sexual immorality. No, you're lying. Because if you really want to know God's will in a matter, you would do what God has specifically, expressly, clearly stated as his will. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's, uh, let's honor this passage by standing as we read it concerning this and uh, believing it to be the word of God. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk, and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So they're doing well. This word of admonition goes to people who are doing well, not just folks who are in the crisis of their life. So if you think that you're seeking the Lord, this is a word for you. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body and holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You may be seated. So verse 3 says it very clearly. This is the will of God. Your sanctification. Alright. So, any questions here? <laughs> what does that mean to be sanctified? Well, we talked about it being set apart. It comes from the same word, root word, as the word holy. Alright, holy. Being set apart for God. What does that mean? You're seeking him. You're seeking him in your heart. You're seeking him in your actions. That in all of your life, you're seeking him. Now, also, maybe those words don't appeal to you. you know, we talked about what the word holy sometimes has negative images for us of dour, sour-faced looking people. Uh, well, another word that comes from this word, the English word whole, being whole, has the same root from the words where we get holy and sanctified. God wants you to be whole. 
You remember how we talked about this some time ago? When God made you, he made you in his image. That meant that he made you with the capacity to know him and to be like him. If someone is whole before God, then they are wholly complete like him. And we're not divided, we're not segmented, we're not partially there. God's desire for you is to be whole as he has made you, designed you to be, knowing that there is greater joy, greater joy in being whole as God has made you in his image than any other uh, slight happiness that is temporary in its nature. So this is the will of God that you are set apart. I'm going to tell you that if you want to be set apart today, there is no other area that so sets you apart as being sexually uh, controlled by God. To not follow the dictates of what this world is permissible or what says is permissible. That sets you apart, guys. Does it not? In the gym rooms and the side meetings over lunches and the jokes that are being made and how you view and look at others. Ladies, is this not true? And how you have your discussions with your girlfriends. It sets you apart. What is the will of God? Well, then he elaborates on this in verse 3. This is the will of God, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, that word sexual immorality is the general term of porneo. Sounds familiar? All right. Now, that encompasses, encompasses a large range. There is what you call adultery, which is sex outside of marriage. When you're uh, involved emotionally and physically and sexual acts outside of your marriage bounds, then that's often classified in the Bible as adultery. Now, fornication re- refers generally to the sexual activity that happens before marriage and your thought life and your actions. And so the word sexual immorality, a porneo, encompasses both. All the areas of anything outside of the bounds that God has given in marriage. So what does that mean? Well, for the younger ones is when, when mommy or daddy is with another person, another person of the opposite sex, like they should be only with their mommy or daddy, then uh, whether laying down in bed with them as only mommy and daddy should do, then this is what God regards as immorality, sexually speaking. Now, Proverbs has some good words for us. He says, you notice the word abstain? Abstain, that is a shrinking away from. One of the popular questions is how close can I get to sex morality and not be sexually immoral? Well, you're already there. Congratulations. By your desire. That you want to be sexually active in your heart, it already betrays the fact that you're not seeking God, but you're seeking sex outside of God's direction. Congratulations. You crossed the line. And that you want more. The, see, the biblical mandate is to abstain, to say, I'm going to shrink away from this. I'm going to look at how I can avoid this in my life. You see, Proverbs chapter 5, verse 8, gives the word to the young man, keep your way far from her concerning the adulterers. It's not how close I can get, but how far away I can get away from this. Proverbs chapter 7, verse 25, do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. What, what is the caution? Your heart. Your heart. That is why it's important for us to guard our affections toward Christ. That is why it's important to be seeking Him to abstain from this area. 
to shrink away. The hee-haw show. Sam, are you here? Sam will like this. Hee-haw show. Doc Campbell is confronted by a patient who says that he broke his arm in two places. So the doc replies, well, then I would advise you to stay out of those places. All right? So the thought is, is you need to be careful about where you go and what you do, what time that you go. Uh, do not, as Romans 13 or 14 says, make no provision for your flesh that you would fulfill the lust thereof, but put on rather Christ Jesus. In other words, don't make life hard for you. You know, don't be in places where your mind tends to wonder. Don't watch things. Don't read things that makes it hard for your mind to see God. That's why I think the, the vigilance that we have to be is, is asking ourselves, what is stealing my affection from Jesus Christ? What is stealing my devotion, my heart, my emotion from him towards something else? That is uh, where we constantly ask ourselves to, to keep our mind clear. Now, what else is the will of God? We read, uh, continuing here, verse 4, where we think, well, you know, this is fine. I'm not, I'm not engaged in any of these sexual activities, but uh, my desires. He hadn't hit on that yet. Well, verse 4, what is the will of God? That your desires are guided by holiness to God and honor to others. You know how it says here? That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Now, some translations, and a better translation might be how to take a wife for himself in holiness and honor. But uh, we get the idea here as well that that whether it is to take a wife or to control your own body, the same is is still there that you are controlled in your desires, all right, by holiness and honor. And here's the contrast, verse 5, not in the passion of lust, that's the desire part, like the Gentiles who do not know God. Now, interesting, the two guides are holiness and honor. What's the big deal about honor? Well, honor is where you honor a person. You see, lust says to a person, you know what, I just want your body, I want your body to satisfy my desires, but I don't want to live my life with you. No thanks, just, you know, let's make a partial deal. Let me have your body for just a little while, then you go on with your day. And live your life as you want. But I don't really desire to be with you as my lifelong companion. Is that honorable? Does that honor a person to be thinking that way? No. It segments them. It divides them. And says, let me just take what I think is the best part of you and I don't like the rest of you, so just go on. No. Marriage is where you say, I want you. To be my lifelong partner in every part of you. Not just an aspect of you. And then, not only you're guided by honor, but you're guided by holiness to God. All right. So this is where you, you regard God's role in your life. When you say, God, if you are Lord, you are Lord over every area of my life, including my thoughts, including my eyes, including my sex life. Lord, let me worship you. Listen, let me worship you with my sex life. Does it regard the value of God in this area? And so this is what it means to be guided by the holiness of God in this area. I am not preaching an anti-sex message. Please believe me. I'm not doing that. I wouldn't do that. This is, in fact, actually a pro-sex 
in a holy manner. There is, it is a fitting place for a guy and a girl to enjoy, to love, and desire sex with one another in God's design. And that, that is no uh, limitation, on, uh, that is not a, a downgrade when I say that, all right? That is an upgrade. I, I think of uh, Jim Elliott. Jim Elliott, I, I read his journal back when I was in college and it took me about the same amount of time to read it as he did to write it. Uh, over four years, I think. Uh, but one of the things that his wife made statement of when they got married is, is he, she said this, I believe that my husband lives to the hilt everything he believes to be the will of God. And she made that statement in regards to marriage life and regards to sex life. He lived to the hilt what he believed to be the will of God. In other words, fully engaged, fully enjoy that area. But understand that this is a desire that is guided by honor and holiness to God. So, some things to keep in mind regarding our desires. Psalm 101 verse 3 is a great verse to memorize. I will set no wicked thing before mine eyes. I hate the work of them that turn aside. It shall not cleave to me. Great one concerning your TV, concerning uh, your cable, concerning your internet. Proverbs 4 verse 23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the spring, or springs of life. All right, now what I'm telling you is you've got to prepare for moral temptation now. There are some things that you can do. There is the importance aspect of enlisting godly accountability. This is something that I have done throughout different parts of my life. Um, and, you know, guys, I know it's a, it's a tough one, but your wife can be a part of this. And so could some godly guys be a part of this. Guys know what it's like to be a guy. They can ask you. Girls, in a sex-saturated society, it is alarming to see the growing rates of girls being addicted to pornography, being sexually aggressive. This is not just to the guys. Establish biblical moral perimeter there are going to be some things you have to decide right now when you're not in an emotionally charged situation to say this is what i will do and this is what i won't do i just made a rule i i don't want to be in a car with another girl outside of my wife or my family when i don't have anyone else with me there's no good that'll come from that to avoid those situations where you're not alone with someone Examine sin circumstances. This is important. There, there you'll find that there may be a, a circumstance in your life that temptation is stronger in your life. Maybe it's when you're tired. Maybe it's when you're frustrated. Maybe when you're traveling. Or you think through these and figure out what the circumstances are and put extra guards there. Examine the sin's entrances. Your mind, the things that you read, the things that you consider, your eyes, what you look at, your heart, your body. These are the gateways into your heart. Don't flirt with temptation, but run from it. Let me just tell you uh, a, a nice little acronym that John Piper has taught, and I think it's, it covers a lot. And it's the word anthem, all right? I, this isn't on the screen. You just have to listen, all right? Can you do that? <laughs> just listen. Uh, it's the word anthem, all right? A stands for avoid. Avoid. This goes back to Romans 13, verse 14. Make no provision for your flesh. Don't put yourself in bad situations. It's a lot 
an easier battle to win when you don't have to fight so many battles. Avoid some situations. Uh, and then N stands for no. This is what you have to tell yourself. In the midst of temptation, or in the midst of maybe your eyes or what you're reading or what you're hearing about, or what your heart may be yelling, there's got to be a point where you just yell out no. And if you need to, do it out loud. No. <laughs> just say that. You've got, at the most, five seconds. At the most, five seconds to make a decision. Now, I don't tell you that so that you can say, oh, okay, one thousand, two thousand, three thousand. No, I'm not telling you that to say, go five seconds. I'm telling you at the most, which means as soon as possible, that you're going to have to say no to whatever is on your mind, what you're considering, what you're looking at, that there, there's got to be a no. And then you have to follow that quickly with the T of the word anthem. Turn. Turn. All right, it doesn't, it doesn't do just to say no. You have to replace that thought. And listen, what repentance is, is turning from sin, turning from self, and turning to God. Turning to Christ. And so when you say that no, you follow it up with a, Jesus, I need you. Jesus, will you deliver this from me? Will you take care of this? Help me, give me the strength. And you back up the no with a prayer and turning to the Lord. And then that takes us to the next point, H, hold. You hold on to Jesus Christ because here's what the thing is, is that you can say, okay, I said no, I'm turning, I'm considering Jesus Christ, I had a prayer, but that thought's still there. So do I go back? Oh, it didn't work. No. You hold on to Christ. You Perhaps maybe this is where scripture memory comes in, where you need to prolong your thought to Christ, and you say, oh, I had a verse, and, and then you start thinking about what that verse is stating, and verbalizing, and working it on your, in your head, okay? Uh, and you hold on. How long do you hold on? As long as you need to, considering Jesus Christ, and who he is, and what he is to you. E, you enjoy it. You enjoy what you're holding on to. You consider the pleasure of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he provides for you. And then M, move. Get busy. Do something. Just, just get your mind engaged in work. You know, tie your shoe, polish your shoe, do whatever you need to do. Think of something. Just move and get yourself out of uh, a situation where you're constantly being bombarded and get your mind engaged. So you, can you remember the anthem? A, avoid, N, no, T, turn, H, hold on, uh, E, enjoy, M, move. Okay? Now, let's keep on back to our passage here. Notice, I just want to, let me bring out this one point, though. He says, Know how to control your own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles. All right? Remember, all those who were not Jews were considered Gentiles, ethnically speaking. But he's not talking about just the race. He's talking about anyone who doesn't know God. It was kind of their terminology for someone who doesn't believe in God, who's not a follower of Christ. Not in the passion of lust like unbelievers who do not know God. I just want to bring out the antidote, the long-term antidote for Dealing with sexual immorality and the temptations thereon is to know God, is to seek Him. You cannot seek Him and seek sex 
outside of God's bounds at the same time. It is the antidote. Seeking him is the antidote for sexual immorality. I, you know, if you were watching the uh, championship team, this uh, championship game this past uh, Monday night, what if during halftime, uh, you know, the Duke team went out instead of coming back, they went to go get go to Burger King and said, man, you know what, give me a double Whopper and some fries and let me just sit down. And they came back in and they were carrying their drinks and their fries. And all right, let's go with the game. Would they have much success in winning that game? No, because half of them would be out sick. You know, it, it was an activity that was a distraction and deterring from the goal. Sexual immorality is like that. It will take you away from seeking God. It is one of the quickest. I don't doubt, I don't doubt one bit that as we're doing this study that every single one of you have had to tackle this issue in your life. I'd be surprised if you didn't. Wherever you see a group of people seeking God, you'll see the work of Satan and those around asking to go after immorality because it detracts you from God. Now, Chuck Swindoll put his his perspective in this way in, in the book Dropping a Guard. He says, ever so slightly, invisible moral and ethical germs can invade bringing the beginning states of a terminal disease. No one can tell by looking, for it happens imperceptibly. It is slower than a clock and far more silent. There are no chimes, not even a persistent ticking, an oversight here, a compromise there, a deliberate looking the other way, a softening, a yawn, a nod, a nap, a habit, a destiny. And before we know it, a chunk of character falls into the sea. A protective piece of bark drops into the grass. What was once no big thing becomes, in fact, bigger than life itself. What started with inquisitive innocence terminates at destructive addiction. John Steinbeck wrote these lines once to another person. There's a creeping, all-pervading gas of immorality which starts in the nursery and does not stop until it reaches the highest offices, both corporate and governmental. I'm just telling you, you live in a society that breathes the air of sexuality, of of being charged sexually. It's there. And we have to have intentional work of grace in our life to be other. To be other than that. Now, I want you to understand there's one other uh, will of God stated here. All these, understand, this is the will of God. Your sanctification. What is God's will? That you abstain from sexual immorality. What is the will of God? That your desires are guided by holiness to God and to honor others. And, and then to have the college student or the young uh, high school student said, you know what, I all of a sudden I've got to make decisions concerning my life, where to go to school and what to do with my life and who do I get married. And these decisions I'm not prepared with. I don't know how to discern God's will. And all the while they're enjoying their own sexual desires without any regard to what God says. And then they want God to come into life and give them down, take them down the path of peace and prosperity. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. But notice verse 6. We have another, the fourth clearly stated statement of God's will. It says, for God is not, or that, to verse 6, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is avenger in all these things. It is God's will that no one hurts a brother in this area, and I would say a sister as well. Listen. 
when I dishonor a woman in my mind or by my actions, and I say, I just want your body, I don't want you for my lifelong companion, and I say to God, God, I just want you to help me in times of crisis and when things go really bad with my family and myself, um, and I want you to make sure that you clearly state what direction I need to go in, but in regards to this area, no, I don't want you, let me just indulge myself, I am harming a brother or sister, obviously the sister in question, but to whomever that sister God has given her to, whether her dad, her mother, or her husband, I have transgressed, I've sinned against a brother in Christ. I am not loving him. I'm not loving her. I'm loving myself. And that's all it comes down to. And when I love myself, I cannot love God and I cannot love others. And I am hurting a brother in this area. Now, Larry Graves did a great job explaining this to some of our ladies. That there, there will be men who will take this passage seriously. And they'll be practicing anthem to themselves all day long. And saying no and avoiding and, and holding on to Christ. And, and he just made a great point that, ladies, not every guy is trying to undress you. Some guys are trying to follow the Lord in this. Help them. You know what you wear that gives you extra attention because it accentuates a part of a body that appeals to a guy much like a prostitute's dress would do. Be careful there. Be careful there. Daddies, it is your job to tell your little girl, get this, daddies, it is your job to tell your little girl what appeals to a guy's mind and takes them down a selfish, sexually deviant path. Mamas don't know. You know, Daddy. And a girl won't know unless a Daddy tells her. Do you understand that? Okay. I need some, I need some adherence from you that you, hey, I'm, I'm there, I'm clicking with you, I understand, all right? Now, what's the big deal? These are the four clearly statements of what God's will is. What's the, you know, really? I mean, there's folks that are corrupt, they're murdering people, there's social injustice, there's poverty, why is God so concerned about this? Why doesn't God just spend his time with, with helping the folks in Haiti? What's the big deal? Well, he speaks to this in verse 6. First, notice what it says in verse 6. No one transgress or wrong a brother in this matter, because the Lord is avenger and all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. What's the big deal? God avenges. If you are wronging a brother in Christ because you are committing adultery with her, even in your heart, God's aware of it, he sees it, he judges it. Proverbs makes a very good point that if you are with another woman who's not your wife and belongs to another, there's few things that can generate such hate 
and scorn and severe punishment as such as that. So much so that God says, I take it. It's mine. The courts of this society can't handle it. What else? Well, verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. God, in, on the cross, dying for our sins, rising up from the dead, and providing the gift of the Holy Spirit, does not provide all these things so that you can say, hey, I've got the penalty of sin removed, I don't have to worry about hell anymore, so let me just indulge my private fantasies. After all, God will just forgive me. God's not called you to that type of lifestyle. God's called you to holiness. And let me just state this, just because society says it's okay, doesn't mean it's okay. There's stuff on TV. doesn't even have a PG rating. But it could be the danger to your soul. Just because it's on TV, just because it doesn't have a rating, doesn't mean it's okay. God has called us to holiness, not immorality. And verse 8 steps it up. Therefore, Whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. All right. Why did he say that last bit? His Holy Spirit. You know what the Bible says is a sure sign that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? So the Spirit of God is with us. You know what the Bible says is a sure sign that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? That you have the fruit of the Spirit. That you are walking in obedience. That seeking Him is not demonstrated by what you profess or what you sing. But seeking Him is demonstrated by your lifestyle. You know how faith is exhibited? Faith is not exhibited by whether or not you made a profession of faith one day in your life. And you walked down an aisle that you were baptized and that you joined a church. Profession of faith exhibited, biblically speaking, is done in your life. That we've seen in Hebrews that faith and obedience actually literally becomes interchangeable with one another. And that where faith is, obedience comes. James brings this out. That where there is no obedience, there is no faith. And where there is no faith, there is no obedience. It's fleshed out. So what does it mean when you have someone that says, I will walk how I want. I will think how I think. I will indulge the fantasies of my mind. I've got a private X-rated gallery going on in my mind, continually speaking. But I profess Christ as my Savior. And when I die... Let me bring some passages to bear that I pray will shock you and wake you like it shocks me and wakes me. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. How? Well, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Within you whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you are bought with the price of glorified God in your body. God has a design for your body. However way it's been made, short or tall, bald or hairy, blue-eyed or brown-eyed, freckled or fair or tan, it doesn't matter. There is a design in how God made your body, and the design ultimately rests in the fact that it gives glory to God. It gives glory to God. And so he indwells your person with the very spirit of God. And when you are sexually immoral, you are 
disregarding the very spirit of God that is crying out for purity in your life. All right? 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you, as sojourners, travelers, and exiles in this world, you don't belong to this world, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Wow, what does that mean? Wage war against your soul. Do you not understand and got to the point here that sexual immorality, the lust of your flesh, the things that are going on in your mind, the things that this world says, think on this. Those things are constantly waging war with the Spirit of God in our soul. It is trying to destroy our soul. So there is no hint of the Spirit of God in our life. What does it mean when no one has the hint of the Spirit of God in your life? What does it mean when life is characterized by disobedience, by not seeking God, but seeking sexual pleasures, to make sexual pleasures your God in your life, that it provides the joy in your life, that provides the, the frustration to everything in your life? Matthew 5, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says in the Beatitudes, But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. Oh, Jesus is speaking metaphorically. This is hyperbole speech, you know, he's exaggerating stuff. He doesn't really want us to tear off our arm and take out our eye. No, he is using exaggerated speech, but notice at the end, it's better that happens, then your whole body be thrown into hell. Hmm. It's amazing what gymnastics will do to try to interpret that other than what it says. Let me throw another verse at to you. For us to consider, to be shocked. Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, even desire and covetousness, which is idolatry, and on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Oh, he's just talking about the unbelievers that are here when the Lord raptures up everybody and God's wrath is going to come. But notice who he's talking to? He's talking to believers. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Are you catching a little bit of what Scripture is saying? Galatians 5, 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That's the works of the flesh. This is the passage that talks about the works of the Spirit. Will be manifest in those who believe in Jesus Christ. But when you do not have the Spirit of God reigning, when you're not seeking Him, expect these fruits in your life. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Oh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. When a life is characterized by sensuality, when a life is characterized by sexual immorality, when a life is characterized by impurity, they're hearing the things of God, they're hearing these passages, but yet they continue on and say, yeah, I know these things, but I still take too much pleasure, too much pleasure. I don't want to hold myself accountable. I don't want to confess 
these things to other people because that's embarrassing. And, and frankly, I just want to continue in this direction. When a lifetime is spent like this, I don't have a lot of comfort for you. But warning, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, pastor, surely not. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. When a person is characterized by unrighteousness, it is because there is a unrighteous spirit in them, a selfish spirit. It is because there is a lack of God's spirit in their life. If there was ever God's spirit speaking to them, they have so quenched it, so destroyed it, and they have shown that they are not elect of God. They have shown that they are not of God because they have walked away from God despite what they may profess, despite what they may look like. In their heart, they take no joy from God. Hebrews 12, 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This idea that we can have a faith that saves us from the penalty of sin, but is divorced somehow from the faith in Christ that saves us from the practice of sin. Where does that come from? Where do I find that? When I find in scriptures that faith is interchanged with obedience. That Jesus saves not just from the penalty of sin, but he saves us from sin. That there is a spirit of God that is an overcoming work in our life. That there is a spirit of God that manifests and makes evident those who are believers and that we are to be characterized by submission to the spirit of God. Because, after all, we are seeking God. Isn't that what it means to be a follower of Christ? But we've allowed this label called Christianity to be placed on us. And we put underneath it the umbrella that says, oh yeah, you can be a Christian, but you don't have to seek God. You can be a Christian as long as you've made a profession of faith at some point in your life, regardless of how your life is characterized, and more importantly, how your life ends. I'm warning us. I'm warning me. I'm warning you. I just don't see how that's in Scripture. Here's a critical question. What moral compromises am I making that are destroying my discernment and putting my life and those around me at risk? I just want to preach this message to you because as I read the passages over and over and over again, it seems what at stake is your soul. Why do we live in such a sexually charged world in a society that has so much exposure to the gospel? Because it neutralizes the gospel. It neutralizes the gospel in our hearts, in our life, in our society. How can we seek God when we're seeking ourselves in sexual immorality? 
I want to share a story of a pastor who wrote a letter to the Leadership Magazine, what the church folks read, church leaders, and it uh, wrote about 10 years that he was dealing with lust in his life. He talks about what finally released him. He ran across a book called What I Believe. The author admitted how the plague of guilt had not freed him from lust. He concluded, he concludes that there was one powerful reason to seek purity. The one Christ gave in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The thought hit me like a bell rung in a dark, silent hall. So far, none of the scary negative arguments against lust had succeeded in keeping me from it. But here was a description of what I was missing by continuing to harbor lust. I was limiting my own intimacy with God. The love he offers is so transcendent and possessing that it requires our faculties to be purified and cleansed before we can possibly contain it. Could he, in fact, substitute another thirst, another hunger for the one I had never filled? Would living water somehow quench lust? And that was the gamble of faith. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What did that mean when Jesus said it to the disciples that day? He was talking to disciples. Before that, he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is it we're to mourn? Perhaps maybe we should mourn the fact that we've been seeking other gods. And our life has been breathing stinky air, and we didn't even know it. We didn't even know it. We're so indifferent to it. And we think this is what a Christian life is to be. And Paul rings out like he did in Corinth and to Thessalonica. He does to Nightdale. The life of a believer is a wholly different life. I preach this word, I declare, for the salvation of your very soul. Do you understand what's at risk? Don't let the cares of this world choke out the seed of the gospel in your life. The evidence of the gospel working in your life, the evidence that you are secure in Christ, is that you will continue in Christ and that you will seek in Christ. And the power of God will be at work. So here's my word of comfort to you. It comes right off 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. You have the power of God injected into your very soul. And if, with the word, Lazarus can rise from the dead, how can it not be that with the very same Spirit of God that we can be risen from the ashes of lust toward holiness set apart to God? But I warn you, pride, God will resist. You say, well, pastor, you're hitting home here, and I don't like it much anymore. I'm ready to get out of here. And I don't want to talk about this with anybody. You could be stealing your faith. God resists that. Say, I'm going, to be, I'm, going to, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to take care of it. But I want God's grace. How do you get God's grace? God gives his grace to those who are humble, humble. Do you seek God enough to be willing 
to open up this area of your life to somebody? Or you want to just continue on and glide? It's a danger to your very soul. Let's pray.